You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, welcome and uh, the, welcome to the first of a few uh, talks that we're going to do that have absolutely nothing to do with COVID, which I think we're all going to be very happy about. I, I do think, uh, certainly in my world, it, it certainly seems like that's 99.9% of everything that's in front of my face, but it's important to keep in mind that medicine in other areas of the world haven't stopped, st- haven't stayed still, and there's been some very important in- advances and very important information as far as studies, as far as guidelines, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, in fact, what we're really going to focus on uh, for the next few talks. We're going to talk about some uh, some guideline updates. And so uh, while we're getting away from COVID, we're not getting away from uh, from infectious diseases because our first talk is going to be the brand new guidelines from the Infectious Disease Society of America on Lyme disease, which is something that, again, I live in, in Iowa, so it's, uh, Lyme disease is certainly not unheard of in my neck of the woods. Um, and uh, and uh, certainly, I suspect many of, many of my listeners are, are are, are probably the same way. So before we get started, though, as always, uh, please thank you for listening. Head on over to where you get your podcast. Click on that like. Click on uh, on uh, uh, the the subscribe if you haven't already done that. And please tell your friends and uh, family about the the podcast. Please uh, head over to CE Impact, our producer, and have to take a look as we got a uh, they have a ton of great CE uh, programs. In fact, we were talking about uh, uh, the uh, uh, expo that's coming up. I've been privileged to speak at Expo. I think almost every year since. I've started here at, at Drake now 21 years ago, and it's it's tremendous. I get uh, most of my live CE from it, and uh, even though obviously it's going to be virtual this year, there's they if you take a look at at their uh, at their uh, uh, lineup, it's incredible, and and they get some great stuff. And uh, we are going to be I'll be talking at that as well, which uh, about of course COVID, <laughs> we'll talk about later on. But before uh, uh, before any of that goes on, let's get back to what we're talking about, which of course is is Lyme disease. Many of you know, of course, Lyme disease is is an interesting disease because it's a very complex disease. It's not a, not a normal bacterial disease uh, because it is a tick-borne infection, as we know, and it's and it's uh, caused by a kind of weirdo spirochete uh, called Borrelia. And, and because it can have a number of unusual and, frankly, kind of long-term uh, consequences, uh, there's been a lot of mystique and, 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 frankly, misinformation, I think, over the last 25 years that's kind of come up with Lyme disease. And, you know, Lyme disease has been theoretically linked to all sorts of other types of diseases including you know arthritis and 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 chronic fatigue syndrome and and fibromyalgia and all that other stuff and and you know there there was even this kind of thing called chronic Lyme syndrome where people who who had been supposedly infected with Lyme disease you know had this you know these kind of long acting I, I don't feel good I, I have fevers all the time I can't think straight I'm tired all the time and that's kind of gone away because I think I think we, we realize that there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that but it doesn't erase the fact that there are a number of serious chronic uh, uh, manifestations of Lyme disease that do need to be discussed, and 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 uh, 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 that's what I think the IDSA guidelines do. Like all guidelines, they uh, they take a look at uh, the latest evidence. They um, ask a number of of clinical questions, and then they uh, do a literature search, often a systematic review, to evaluate the level of evidence to answer that question, and then they uh, answer the question. And, and various uh, organizations do this 
differently do they recommend do they suggest etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, usually what what uh, the IDSA does is they'll they'll either recommend for or against uh, something in the question and then they'll state their level of evidence afterwards so um, and that's and that's kind of what we do uh, the, the the slime guidelines are, are pretty voluminous and so certainly if you want if you want to read them we'll have a link to them in in the show notes and you can certainly take a look at them but we're going to hit the highlights again what what is the boots on the ground pharmacists you know really need to know about about Lyme disease especially if you happen to live in uh, you know the northeastern states of the United States uh, actually as far south as Virginia um, it's also pretty prevalent in in must uh, much of eastern Canada and again in my neck of the woods and in the Midwest and upper Midwest and also northern California uh, uh, it is of course spread by the the bite of the exodes tech or tick excuse me tick tech tech you know what I mean tick um, and uh, yeah that's basically how it's that's the vector that it's spread by so if you don't get a tick bite you can't get Lyme disease right um, so it's it's people who usually have gone camping people who live rurally things along li- those lines who are, who are going to be much more likely uh, uh, to develop Lyme disease and of course you know you're only going to get uh, this particular tick bite if you live in an in endemic area so if you live in the desert southwest for example you're pretty unlikely to 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 get bit by the exodes tick um, um, but if you're in, in an endemic area and you go camping or you're hanging out or you're you're uh, working in the backyard and all day long and you don't recognize it you can certainly get bit by a tick and you can be at risk for this sort of stuff so what do the guidelines say in a nutshell first they talk about about diagnosis and and probably the most important piece about the diagnosis is if you're bit by a tick if it's at all possible to remove the tick and and again we're this we don't have the time and the idsa doesn't even really go into a whole lot of you know detail about how to remove the tick and there's certainly as you might guess and certainly my parents you know had a million different ways to remove ticks so you know you know stick a lit match on it put some oil on it you know i mean uh, there's a million ways but if you can remove the tick and 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 at least take a look at it and 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 uh look at this at the species identification there's actually several websites on online where you can actually uh uh, uh take a look at at, at uh, uh, the shape of the tick and its formation and, and, and try and identify it. And that will help you determine whether it is an exoides tick, uh, if, if at all possible. Um, now, some have argued that, well, if you've got the tick, why don't you go ahead and take a look and see if, if you can actually get the actual organism that causes uh, Lyme Borrelia from the tick. But the guidelines don't recommend that because uh, the presence or absence in the tick, it, it actually has, does not reliably predict the likelihood of a clinical infection. And as you might imagine, it's kind of different difficult to do. I mean, what are you going to do? Take this tick and put it in a bag and take it to the doctor and have them take it, you know, to the micro lab. I mean, that's, that's just going to be pretty, pretty uh, cumbersome in my opinion. So the bottom line is, is, is identify if the patient has gotten bit by a, uh, an exoides tick and then they are at, at risk, as you might imagine. Now, if they do get bit, and um, by a uh, a a tick, an exodes tick, and they're at risk. Uh, you can actually use prophylaxis, and and the next section of the guidelines talk about prophylaxis for Lyme disease, and they say yes, that that several studies have now have looked at 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 uh, uh, prophylaxis for patients who were bit by a tick in a high risk area, and in fact they say that that if you can um, um, uh, identify the tick as the appropriate species, that if it was the appropriate species, if you live in an endemic area or the or the bite occurred 
occurred in endemic area and that the tick had has been attached for at, at what you estimate to at least be 36 hours so quite a while you'd have you'd have to pretty much go quite a while to 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 uh, to have that happen then you are a candidate for for prophylaxis they do recommend that that um, uh, the the standard prophylaxis is a single dose of doxycycline 200 milligrams for adults and then uh, uh, they actually do give it a children's dose uh, the, the guidelines go into some detail about uh, what I was certainly taught and what I'm sure you were probably taught in pharmacy school that you don't give tetracyclines to children because it, it increases the risk of bone problems or teeth uh, malformation uh, they actually uh, say that if uh, that it is actually still reasonable to consider a single dose of this in children that it's unlikely to cause uh, serious bone problems or tooth discoloration problems and they're right the tooth discoloration studies uh, or reports that were done back in the 60s and 70s were primarily patients who were taking daily doxycycline for a variety of things so it would certainly be reasonable to do i think and, and the guidelines do, do mention that now, um, if uh, they don't get prophylaxis, um, and you know you have someone who who comes to you with kind of the 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 standard rash that's associated with 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 Lyme disease, and I've seen this a few times in my in in, in my career, and it, it's a very distinctive rash. You, know, you ain't going to be missing it for anything else, and it it is basically a circular. It literally looks like a circle of red where where where, where the bite was, and then it has a target-like appearance. So there's a, there's red, and then there's the normal skin, and there's kind of a red target in the middle, and and it, you know, again, I've seen it enough, you know, even five or six times in my career to go, yeah, okay, that's Lyme disease. I know for a fact that's Lyme disease. And so, if someone, you know, shows you a rash that looks like that, and and and, and that that term is erythema migrans, by the way, uh, if 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 you see that, then yes, I think that person absolutely needs to go 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 see their 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 physician to suite and and see what's going on with that because um, they're at uh, they are at risk of, of developing and, and early treatment may help develop some of these long long standing issues that you have. So uh, again. If someone had erythema migraines and they, oh yeah, by the way, I, I did go, I did go, go camping two weeks ago, or yeah, I was cleaning out uh, my uh, my backyard or my 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 shed in the backyard for the first time, you know, all year, you know, then 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 absolutely that can happen. You can actually have more than one uh, skin lesion suggestive of of erythema migraines, but it's usually one, and and go. So then, if somebody has that, um, uh, they do recommend just clinical diagnosis rather than laboratory testing because it, it's it's while it's not pathognomic, it's it, it's, it's pretty close. Um, if they do develop uh, that, then they should you should treat them for it. Uh, doxy, as as with most vector-borne diseases, uh, a little a little a uh, little pearl for the students out there who are who are, listening, who are getting ready to study for their NAPLEX or anything along those lines. Uh, something that was told me long ago is that if you have a a, a zoonosi, a tick-borne or an animal-borne disease, and and you get asked the question about it, you don't don't know what the treatment is. If you say doxy, you're going to be right like 95% of the time because it just seems to treat all these weirdo. Uh, um, um, uh, uh, infections from animals, infections from from you know ticks and 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 mosquitoes and stuff like that. So they do recommend doxycycline. If if the patient was allergic to doxycycline, then uh, cefuroxime is is actually uh, recommended as as another first line agent. And then if they for some reason, had someone who had really bad allergies or like that, then the preferred uh, uh, next line agent would be azithromycin. And they do recommend a 10-day course of treatment with doxy um, and a 14-day course of treatment of cefuroxime, actually. So, so that's fortunately where the vast majority of, of Lyme patients, they, you know, they get the rash, they get treated, they get fine, nothing ever happens, they, they, they do terrific and everything's okay. Unfortunately, there are three manifestations of, tick, uh, of uh, Lyme disease that aren't so swell and uh, um, uh, 
probably the, the most severe one is is neurologic manifestations of of um, Lyme disease. Fortunately, this is fairly rare, which I'm I'm, I'm very happy about. Um, but but you it it's it's actually called uh, neuroborreliosis because Borrelia is the the organism, and it can affect the central nervous system. It can affect actually affect the meninges and the brains actually, um, and is actually uh, there's actually an, an eponym for it. It's called uh, Banworth syndrome, uh, uh, which is uh, after erythema migrans, the second most common manifestation of, of Lyme disease, uh, and it's particularly common in Europe. For in, interestingly, uh, it typically manifests itself with uh, with uh, pain that's similar to zoster, kind of this this dermatome type segmental pain uh, that uh, is actually worse at night. It doesn't respond well to common pain relieving agents because it is a neurologic uh, 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 problem, of course, and has that kind of burning, stabbing sensation that you have. Um, and and then they can develop uh, uh, different nerve defects. You can get cranial nerve defects in about 60% of patients and particularly the facial nerve involvement. We, you can actually get facial palsies and things along those lines. And then again, sometimes even psychiatric manifestations as well. Um, so that can occur now. If the person doesn't have a history of this, and they're very clear about this, and I've seen this uh, many times myself, is someone comes in with, you know, you know, they're depressed, or they have they have a bipolar disorder, or or something like, or or some sort of new neurologic syndrome, and they say, well, we better test them for Lyme disease. Well, they actually say, do not routinely test these patients for Lyme disease unless the story fits the possible infection. So, you know, you know, yeah, the person has developed, you know, new onset seizures. We don't routinely test for Lyme disease in those patients unless they say, oh yeah, by the way, they. Started, this started about two months after I went I went camping, and oh yeah, I had a rash. Now that you mention it, you know I mean yeah, you you don't normally do that. Treatment for a, a Lyme borreliosis um, is uh, usually intravenous therapy, um, at least initially. Um, and in fact, that's what the guidelines recommend is initial intravenous therapy, and they do recommend uh, um, uh, ceftriaxone, cefotaxime, or penicillin G. Probably ceftriaxone, especially if this person initially was going to be treated as an outpatient, and they probably will be inpatient initially, and then probably go to outpatient would be the easiest because it's once daily, it's easy to give. Um, so unless the patient was super uh, um, allergic to beta-lactams or something, that I think ceftriaxone would probably be the way to go. Um, but again, a lot of it's just based on individual factors that, you know, of which one you pick. And the duration, it's a fairly long uh, antibiotic duration of 14 to 21 days, basically. So that's the first manifestation of Lyme disease that ain't so swell. The second is Lyme carditis, and I have actually seen this once just in the last couple of years. Um, and so basically, you have a you have a patient who has Lyme disease that now has cardiac involvement, and uh, um, uh, though it primarily manifests itself as new onset bradycardia, so their heart rate starts to drop really low. It actually can manifest in a variety of ways with uh, uh, different con uh, conduction abnormalities, and even in some cases, a uh, heart failure. You can actually get cardiomyopathy in these patients. And so um, even though the most common manifestation is, is, is bradycardia, there's all sorts of, of, of things that can be recommended. As you might imagine, this can be pretty serious. So they do, they do recommend you know, admission to the hospital and cardiac monitoring. They do recommend uh, 14 to 21 days of total antibiotic therapy. And they do recommend IV ceftriaxone is, is, is probably the, the best choice. But again, um, uh, uh, they, they have a kind of alternatives. If you had somebody who was super allergic, doxy would be reasonable, obviously probably or 
orally in, 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 that, in those cases. They do recommend, too, if somebody has new-onset car, uh, cardiomyopathy or new-onset myocarditis, that it is a, a reasonable to, to uh, test them for Lyme disease. So this is one case where uh, a preemptive testing is, is recommended by IDSA and recommended by the guidelines. So if you had someone who kind of out of the blue started developing chest pain and their EKG was, was indicative of myocarditis and their echo was indicative of myocarditis or pericarditis, that it would be reasonable to, 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 die, uh, to check for Lyme disease in these patients um, and, and, um, uh, to, and to see what's going on. And then treatment hopefully will resolve the cardiac abnormalities in those patients. The third and probably uh, uh, thing that kind of kind of gets woven into the, the, the issue of, of, of the chronic fatigue syndrome and joint pain that, that patients have is Lyme arthritis. And, and it's actually the, 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 the least most common, actually, of, of, of the serious manifestations of Lyme disease, but uh, is something you will see occasionally. Um, and so uh, uh, they do recommend that if you have someone who has you know swollen joints and then their story kind of fits that they might be at risk for Lyme disease, you do test them for Lyme disease. In all these cases, they do recommend serum antibody testing um, uh, as a, kind of the initial diagnostic test for severe Lyme disease. Um, but but in this case, they also say that that uh, um, uh, they do call out that that antibody testing is preferred over PCR culture of the synovial fluid. And I've seen that a couple of times in the in the fortunately very few cases of Lyme arthritis I've seen where they'll they'll get some fluid out of the knee or get some fluid out of the the, the uh, shoulder and then try and get PCR uh, and try and actually find the Borrelia in 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 the joint fluid. And uh, they actually recommend against against that again you really just want to be looking for the antibodies. Um, if if the patient is seropositive for those antibodies, um, um, they just uh, then they can say then it's recommended to try PCR applied to the synovial fluid or tissue uh, rather uh, or get a tissue uh, culture rather than a Borrelia culture of, of, of those samples. For treatment of Lyme arthritis, uh, um, they recommend actually long, relatively long therapy of 28 days, so basically a month of therapy. Um, and it's the similar treatments to everything we've talked about now. So doxy would be reasonable. Also with second, third generation cephalosporins would be reasonable as well. Now, most patients who have Lyme arthritis will respond pretty well to that, but there is a, unfortunately a small percentage of patients who only have a partial response. They'll still have some joint swelling after a first course of antibiotics. And this is where there's a lot of controversy. There's not a lot of good information about what to do in these patients. So we get them a second course of antibiotics. Maybe the first course didn't clear it up. Um, you know, do we say at this point, let's just see if everything kind of dies down and, and, and uh, your, you know, your joints kind of get back to normal. And they basically, the, the uh, IDSA kind of punts at this point and says, yeah, we don't have any, uh, we don't have, uh, any information or, don't, or any recommendation because there's just a big knowledge gap. We really don't know what to do in the small percentage of patients who have Lyme arthritis. They don't respond to a first course or don't respond completely to a first course of antibiotics and still have pain and joint swelling. And so this is kind of where that that overlap into what, you know, I think even just as recently as five or six years ago, people were, were, were called, I have chronic Lyme disease. You know, well, you know, what is chronic Lyme disease? It was often, uh, you know, patients, if they had a positive diagnosis of Lyme disease to begin with, that um, uh, that they had uh, uh, this Lyme arthritis that kind of led to joint swelling and pain and, and, and things along those lines. Um, so they do say in patients who have no response to the first course of antibiotics, they suggest a, a course then of IV antibiotics uh, uh, or, or the course of oral antibiotics. So if you had a partial response, they say, well, let's just wait and see what happens because we don't really have any data. But they say if you have no response to oral antibiotics, we can try a two to four week course of IV antibiotics. So they, they note, note that 
that it's a weak recommendation with low quality evidence. Um, and in those patients then who have failed, so they still have either no response to the to the antibiotics or even a partial response to antibiotics. At that point, um, there's there's some thought that this has now become a a chronic a, uh, a, a chronic inflammatory condition or an autoimmune condition uh, similar to rheumatoid arthritis. And at that point, they suggest you know a referral to a rheumatologist um, who might consider some of the drugs you'd use for any you know case of of, of inflammatory arthritis, such as the DMARDs or biologic agents or steroids or, th- or things along those lines, basically. So, um, in patients who've who've had you know uh, non-specific symptoms, again, kind of this you know chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic Lyme disease stuff, uh, but but uh, they don't they do not recommend uh, starting antibiotics in those patients, and if they have confirmed Lyme arthritis, they don't recommend uh, 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 continued antibiotics. And I've seen unfortunately a couple of patients. I remember vividly. Uh, this has been probably eight or ten years ago. We had a patient who had been in my service for something completely different, uh, like a cellulitis or a urinary tract infection. And I noted the patient had been on doxycycline and and you know looked like it was chronic. And I wondered if it was for like acne or something along those lines. And she's not been taking doxy for two years. And I'm like, what? Were, I mean, and then it's not for you know what were you taking it for two years for? And she's like, well, I have chronic Lyme disease. And I went, oh, okay, um, you know, and and again, at at that time, things were you know kind of really up in the air about you know what is chronic Lyme disease, you know, what is it linked to, and and the guidelines do I think really point out and say that that you know there there really is not really a link. Uh, between chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and some of these kind of, you know, kind of ill-defined uh, pain and fatigue syndromes with Lyme disease that, you know, really you need to make the assess the diagnosis of Lyme disease. And certainly people can develop, you know, arthritis and, and, and things along those lines from Lyme disease. Um, but, and unfortunately, it's a very small percentage of those patients, you know, will, will develop a, a, a chronic inflammatory arthropathy. But uh, 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 there was, I think, and, and many of the listeners may know, there there was, I think, for, for a while, there are patients who were on long, long, long-term antibiotics for, for this kind of chronic Lyme disease, which, which again, the guidelines point out is, is just is, is not a, t- a term they want used and, and probably doesn't even have a really good definition. So, so that's kind of a summary of, 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 of the Lyme uh, guidelines. I th- again, I think they're, they're a good read. Um, they, they get in, no, no pun intended, they get into the weeds a little bit. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I think that, that, uh, that they're a good read and, and and, and certainly, as with all IDSA guidelines, you can just hit the summary uh, document, um, and and I think it, it it does point out that 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 we you know do see Lyme disease, that people do get it, and and prompt treatment is probably the best way to prevent the the ongoing development of, of the neurologic, the rheumatologic, or the, or the or the cardiology type of manifestations of it. So, so we'll wrap up here in just a second, but first, a word from CE Impact. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. 
So bottom line, Lyme disease, especially in an endemic area, it should all kind of, always kind of be in the back of your head as far as the differential, especially if someone complains of, you know, a, a target like lesion or rash that, that, that they have, or they, you know, now presented with new onset uh, a zoster type pain or, you know, that kind of that kind of burning uh, 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 shingles type pain um, or, uh, you know, any of these other manifestations we've talked about. It can be very serious. Um, and, and uh, you know, again, identifying patients that are at, at, at who are likely to uh, benefit from prophylaxis, I think, is, is, is I think an area of pharmacists can certainly play a role. Um, and then I think making sure that everyone's aware of the appropriate treatment options. And I think finally, helping patients who are suffering from you know things like uh, you know uh, you know fibromyalgia type pain or neuropathic type pain or chronic fatigue syndrome, you know and and have heard well maybe this is Lyme disease you know certainly encourage them to work with with their providers but keeping in mind the fact that unless unless they've actually gotten you know the diagnosis of Lyme disease unless they actually have those antibodies that it's 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 probably not that and we need to direct their treatment to more appropriate and and, and more effective areas so so that's it for this week of uh, of game changers again uh, please hit the like button. Please uh, subscribe to us. Please uh, uh, tell your friends and head over to CE Impact. We will catch you next week. But remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll catch you next week.